It's a rat's nest of bullshit. Like, I mean, look at it. It's crazy. The trending topic algorithms for most websites are broken at the moment. Facebook, Twitter, they are tra trafficking in rage and radicalized content. There is really nowhere to go anymore that isn't under the thumb of one of these massive corporations. And they care much more about making money through user engagement, even if it's negative, than they do about making the internet something positive and useful for people. And so most of the moderation that's being done, uh, particularly at Facebook, is through contractors, through people who are brought in without really any benefits or training, and they're asked to look at just an unconscionable amount of really, really, really bad content. And it's not going well. Now add that into the lack of agency in the job. Like you're not really making decisions for yourself. You don't have any control over what it is that you're going to see next. And that's hugely problematic from a mental health perspective. There's, it's just this perfect storm of shittiness in the, in the job. I don't know how to describe it any better. It's just, you know, it's, it's just an absolute mess. We worked for a contracting company in a different building with no big fancy logo outside. We're just in an anonymous office block tucked away, far away, where we don't have to inconvenience Facebook by existing. We're not real people. We're not part of the team. We're just cleaners cleaning up the shit in the corner. You're listening to Why Do I Feel? With me, Nathan Filer. This episode is about a group of people who, for their work, are subjected to feeling all manner of difficult, distressing emotions so that we don't have to. They are the psychological front line of our social media. A human buffer zone, if you will, between all the unspeakably nightmarish horrors that dwell in the darkest shadows of the internet and that hilarious video of a cute cat that you want to send to your mum. This is Chris Gray. He was a content moderator for Facebook in Ireland. But right now he's talking to me from Bali, where you can make out the incessant sound of cicadas in the background. Is it cicadas or cicadas? Those insects. They're not going anywhere, I'm afraid. So if you do find it annoying maybe try and change your relationship with that? Either way, it's worth sticking around for his story. Well, it was, I mean, it was just a job that came up, a crappy office job, I thought, just sitting there looking at, at stuff on the internet and applying some rules. It, it sounded kind of tedious, but I needed the job. I was new in Ireland and I needed to get my foot in the door somewhere with some big company. I thought this was going to be my great opportunity they ask you, uh, what's your understanding of the job? And you say, oh, yeah, I think people see stuff and they report it and I have to look at it and you give me some rules. And, and it just sounds very simple and straightforward. And, and they might just casually mention, oh, do you know, some of this might be a bit disturbing. And you know, I'm a grown man. I've been all over the world. I'm, I'm not... It never occurred to me that this kind of stuff could be traumatic. I don't even believe in being traumatised by looking at stuff on a TV screen, a computer monitor. It, it, you just think, 
oh, okay, yeah, I'll just go and be able to do that job. You know, you're doing something useful. You're you're protecting the innocent, saving the world a little bit. So there's kind of that superhero feeling to it as well. Chris is currently suing Facebook for the trauma he has endured trying to keep the internet safe for the rest of us. Feeling the feelings so that we don't have to. We'll be hearing his story in this episode and we'll also be getting some expert testimony from this person. My name is Ryan Broderick. I'm a freelance writer. I write a newsletter called Garbage Day, which uh, is about web culture and technology and moderation. And I host a podcast called The Content Minds, which is also about web culture, technology and moderation. I believe that content moderation should be considered something close to a fifth estate. Uh, in America, you have the, the three estates uh, of, of government, and the fourth estate would be the press, and I think content moderation should be something equivalent. And from this person. My name is Dr. Jennifer Beckett. I'm a lecturer in media and communications at the University of Melbourne, and my area of expertise is in online governance and online communities, but my core area of research at the moment is actually in the well-being of digital workers. Moderators are what we might call the modern-day sin-eaters of the internet. Their job is to basically soak up the worst of us so that we don't have to deal with that. So no shortage of expertise, from the States to Australia to Ireland via Bali, where a rainstorm is now competing with those cicadas, and Chris tells me what a normal day in his job looked like. The job's very simple. You come in, your your boss will say to you, okay, we need you on the child abuse queue now, or the spam queue is, is building up, or <laughs> when all else fails, just go back to the normal high-priority work that you do every day. And it's the hate speech, the bullying, the nastiness, the the graphic violence, all the stuff that's really disturbing. There would be maybe 20,000 tickets in the queue. And I literally just press a button, just go, and the first of those tickets comes up on my screen. You see something, you read something, you make a decision, you press the button, and the next one comes up, and the next one, and the next one. And you would probably see maybe 100 in an hour, typically. You know, the bulk of it is actually just really boring. It, it, it's just people squabbling, petty arguments, kids calling each other names, Instagram particularly. We also used to moderate Instagram, you know, and that's very much teenagers being unkind to each other or perver- perverted old men chasing teenage girls. You can be assigned to work on the queues where you might see some of that kind of content, but the majority of it is more harmless, more benign. But then, you know, when you've been there a while and your your quality scores are good, you you just find that you're being given more and more tickets, being assigned to do more work on the the really difficult queues. Your quality scores, what what do you mean by that? Oh, it's all about the numbers. You're managed like call centre workers. Okay, so let's explain this. You know, I, I look at a piece of content and, and it's um, a naked man wearing fake Ray-Ban sunglasses and he's holding up a sign saying, saying you can buy these fake Ray-Ban sunglasses and all profits go to his favourite terrorist organisation. 
So there's, you know, we've got nudity, we've got support for a terrorist group, we've got fake products on sale. There's a whole bunch of different rules being broken. So you have to go to the, the, the rules on nudity and look through and say, okay, right, so this is, um, you know, delete this one under the pornography and nudity policy, subcategory naked men, subcategory naked penises, subcategory not an erect penis. And then you, know, you, you choose that option. But hang on, wait a minute, no, we've got support for terrorism. So now, you, is this a designated terrorist organization? You have to go to the list, you have to look them up, see if they are on the list uh, as somebody that you're not allowed to support. And then, you know, what is he doing? Is he praising? Is, is he representing? Is he making excuses for some event that happened? So that would be a different category. And then you remember, oh, hang on, wait a minute, no, the, the spam policy is more important than the terrorism policy. So we'll go to the spam policy and we'll look at that and we'll say, yes, Ray-Bans are on our list of brand names that you're not allowed to sell fake products. So then you delete, you know, delete subcategory spam, subcategory fake products, subcategory da-da-da, and, and you make this decision. And then somebody else might audit that decision and you're only allowed to make two mistakes in 100. You have to be 98% accurate all the time. Otherwise, well, you know, quality scores are reviewed every month, and if they fall below the required standard, then you can be put onto a personal improvement plan or told to improve your up, up your game, uh, and eventually you get fired because you know you you were too focused on the terrorism and you missed the fake sunglasses or, or you know whatever your your failure was. I mean, it sounds to me like it's a really crucial job actually, you know, a really important job. People who, you know, use these platforms and come across stuff they're worried about need to, uh, need to escalate it. Well, you're saving lives, I mean, literally. There was, a, there was a kid just before I started the job, there was a, a girl called Molly Russell in England who killed herself because she was being bullied on Instagram. And I kind of joke with you about teenagers calling each other names on Instagram, but people die. The government tells social media companies to take more responsibility for harmful online 14-year-old Molly Russell took her own life in 2017. Now the government is urging social media companies to take more responsibility for harmful online content. These are companies that count their profits in the billions and they turn around and say to us that they can't protect our children and our job is to is to be there and, and to, to stop the harm before it, it gets that bad. I remember the first time I, I saw um, an imminent suicide. Uh, and it was actually one of my colleagues back when I just started and we're on the evening shift, not many people around, and he suddenly he's shouting out, oh my God, I've got a suicide, what, what do I do? Fuck, fuck. And he, he was really panicking and, and we all came rushing over and... You see on the screen somebody cutting their wrists and talking about suicide, and this guy then has to, you know, quickly take action action to escalate this to the, I guess we call it the safety team, and he's looking for what is the procedure? How do I do that? What do I have to do? And and I mean the the adrenaline is pumping through you in this moment because there's a there's a life on the line right now. And I've seen, you know, since then, I've seen live streams of 
looks like a kangaroo court being held in, in Afghanistan or Pakistan or somewhere where some guy in a village is like the whole crowd is standing around they've got guns and they've got rocks in their hand and, he, and he's looks like he's pleading for his life and you're just you're looking in you know, somebody's live streaming this for some reason and you're, you're looking in through a little window there's nothing you can do <laughs> except, except delete it or you know, report it and you, you send these messages off into the void you know hey I think somebody's going to kill themselves or somebody's going to get murdered here and you never hear back you never know what the result was what the outcome was God yeah because I think I'd, I'd well I'd want to know that, that, that something <laughs> was put right or somebody was you helped you want to know or... that you're making a difference even if they don't send you an individual report, why not send every month a summary of what the content moderation team has, has prevented the harm? You know, I, I was contacted a while ago by somebody in the US who worked for a police department and her job was responding to reports that had come to Facebook of child abuse. And she told me, yeah, we've just put somebody in jail based on a tip-off that we got from the Facebook safety team. I mean, can, can you imagine what it would do for you in your work if you, if you got that kind of feedback and you knew that these things were happening? But we don't. We're, we're just cogs in a machine churning out numbers. You, never, you, 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 you don't feel like you're making a difference. So Chris didn't feel like he was making a difference. But that doesn't mean he wasn't. He was clearly taking down some pretty horrendous content. And even if he didn't personally know the direct outcomes of his work, it looks likely that he will have contributed to dangerous people being arrested and vulnerable people being kept safe. But what about the posts that he wanted to take down but wasn't allowed? Britain first, Britain first. Tommy fucking Robinson, these people putting their poison out there and, and you're seeing their comments, you're, you're seeing videos that they've made that people have reported because it's nasty, hateful shit. And you're applying the rules and, and you just have to shrug and say, oh, OK, that doesn't actually break the rules I'm not required to delete this I have to leave it alone and you leave it and an hour later it comes back again because somebody else has reported it because it's so fucking horrible and you just sit there to say no sorry mate yeah nothing I can do I have to let these people say these things what does that what does that do to you how do you how, how do you feel Maybe, you know, you're stopping someone who's selling some illegal Ray-Bans or knock-off Ray-Bans, but you're not able to, to stop someone propagating what you believe to be a, a, a hate crime, a hate speech. It, it's, it's just disheartening. You know, you, you lose... You come into this believing that you're going to fight evil on the internet. Six months later, you're just trying to make your numbers just just grinding away and you, you just you stop thinking about it and you, it's disheartening you, you you don't feel like you're contributing anything it sounds disheartening doesn't it 
to see materials that you believe should be taken down that are perhaps in deep conflict with your own moral position, but that you're obliged to leave up. It's something I discussed with Dr Jennifer Beckett too, and she pointed out that the effects are even worse for moderators who themselves belong to a minority group that's being attacked on the platform, but in a way that doesn't break the official rules. And you can see what somebody is doing is like inflaming hate or being racist, but the platform says no, it isn't. And so then you as a member of that minority group are then forced to leave it up. And that really just works to reinforce the sort of dehumanising message um, around some of that. So imagine you're seeing all of this trauma, you're seeing all of these bad things, it's this constant sort of daily grind of this stuff, and now you're being forced to leave things up that you know are damaging to people like you, they're, they're societally damaging. And then the amount of cognitive dissonance that's required in that role is just, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. And what about the flip side? What happens when a moderator is subjected to so much vicarious racism or extremism that they start to feel persuaded by it? There does seem to be some evidence that some moderators are becoming radicalised just because if you think about how that works, it's a sort of constant um, coming into contact with it but we're also talking about people who are at a low mental health ebb and we know that people who feel disenfranchised people who feel like they are lacking control in their lives people who are already suffering from mental health issues are at a much higher risk of being radicalized than just the everyday person on the street so if you think about it working as a moderator where you're coming constantly in contact with that, you're also often having reinforced that some of that stuff, it doesn't break the guidelines, so it can't be that bad. Um, and you're also in a, in a situation where you are feeling disenfranchised, where you're lacking in agency, where you're exhausted, then yeah, it's the perfect conditions for radicalising people. It honestly is. I remember one of my colleagues came to me one day and asked, do you think you're becoming more racist? And you know, my wife's from Asia. She was raised as a Muslim. We're both immigrants in Ireland. And, and I couldn't just say no straight away. And I asked him why. why. And, and he said, well, you know, I'm listening to Tommy Robinson and, and Britain First all the time. Every night I'm hearing the same things again and again and again. And it's okay. You know, I'm, it's not bad. I don't have to delete it. He's allowed to say these things and it's starting to make sense. You know, I'm starting to believe these things that I'm hearing and I'm starting to look at the Asian members of the team differently. You know, it, it was a very uncomfortable conversation for us to both have and be looking at each other and, and just thinking, my God, you know, what is this job doing to me? It's a fair question, isn't it? What does spending eight hours a day looking at the very worst the internet has to offer in such thankless conditions do to a person? It's a question I asked Ryan Broderick. It's a newer idea, and I think five or six years ago it was laughed at, but it's no longer being laughed at by many journalists. It's basically UGC-based PTSD, um, user-generated content-based post-traumatic stress disorder. And the idea is that you can vicariously experience trauma through images and videos. And 
You see this a lot with younger journalists who are put on a breaking news desk and then they cover uh, an absolutely horrific incident, um, like a plane crash or uh, a mass shooting. And you see this acutely with moderators who are staring at really horrific things. I mean, and, and I think... I think what Facebook doesn't talk about a lot is that because it's so global, you have you have really intense content coming out of parts of the world that like, you know, an English speaking user might never encounter. But when you're given the God's eye, you can see it. And and it's it's grim. You have sexual assaults, you have murders, you have revenge pornography, you have um, you have like animal trafficking, you have I mean, and, and some of the worst bits of humanity you can imagine are on Facebook now. And the people who are tasked with getting these things off the platform have absolutely no support. They have no incentive structure. They have no actual power either. Like they have no say really in what the company's doing. It's just they're there to hit the button. And I find that deeply dehumanizing. Like it, to take all the agency out of a person who does you know, theoretically care enough about the internet to try to make it a better place and to just make them a receptacle for trauma is heartbreaking and, and very, I mean, something has to change there. Vicarious trauma is real. Staring at the worst bits of humanity all day for very little money and, you know, it does a number on you. And these people deserve, you know, whatever they need because they, I don't think they were prepared for exactly how bad this was going to be. And I don't know how you make a company that large care. Other than, I guess, like, you know, legislating the crap out of them. So we're dealing with a very specific kind of trauma here. Something that feels unique to this type of work. Work that involves spending hours at a time looking at thousands upon thousands of distressing posts and images. Jennifer Beckett talked to me about the cumulative effect of this and how it might differ from, say, the lingering effect of witnessing a single traumatic event. If a really big event happens, it all happens in a moment. Yes, there's trauma related to it, but you can kind of close it off. Whereas if you're working in something like content moderation, you'd be working in what psychologists might refer to as a traumatogenic environment, which means the environment in which you're doing the work itself is trauma-inducing. So you're just constantly seeing these negative pieces of content. Some of them are minor. Some of them can be major. You never know what's coming next. So you're constantly in a state of alert you're constantly waiting for the next thing to land and it just wears you down. It's like living in a war zone, except you're doing it in front of a screen. Back to Chris. I should say that I first became aware of Chris's story when reading an excellent and free mental health magazine called Anxiety Empire. So a little plug for them there. In an article about the business of outsourcing trauma, this quote was attributed to Chris. I've got to make the call. Is that baby dead? Then I've got to press the right button. And if I press the wrong button, because my auditor thinks the baby's not dead, 
then I've made a mistake and it goes towards my quality score and I get fired. So I'm lying awake in bed at night, seeing that image again and trying to formulate an argument to keep my job. And then we have 10 seconds of silence while I <laughs> try to think of a, a, an answer or something to say about that. It, it's... Yeah, you think, I mean, the content's not real. You're, you're... It's like I used to be a teacher. It's like just grading kids' homework, you know? And, and I remember that one specifically. It, it was a montage of images that somebody had put together to raise awareness about what was going on in Myanmar. You know, basically ethnic cleansing, genocide, people being murdered and driven out of their villages. And somewhere in that, there was just this shot of a, a baby kind of lying on the ground with its arms by its side, and there was a, a human foot on its chest. And I... I mean, the other side of the argument is, is that this was posted with good intention. Somebody is trying to raise awareness of, of a terrible thing that's happening. But there's no, there's no acknowledgement of that in the rules. You know, the question is, 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 is this depicting a violent death? And I just, I, I felt that this was, this was an image of a violent death. And my auditor didn't, because how do you know the baby's dead? And it's a valid argument. You know, and you go and you look at the rules and you have to read descriptions. What is a violent death, according to Facebook? And they have to, somebody, somebody's being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to sit there writing definitions. But you weren't being paid, presumably, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to, to sit there looking at these images and making these decisions. 12, 12 euros and 98 cents per hour. Fucking, what is it, 22, 23 grand a year. And, I mean, put yourself in the position of, of somebody who's being bullied, some, somebody who's being threatened. You know, it, it could be racist abuse somebody targeting your business and your livelihood. You, you, you could be a kid, a teenager being bullied, a grandmother being exploited by some scam artist, you know, the Yahoo boys, we call them. Whoever you are, when, when this is happening and you, you reach out to Facebook for help, what kind of person do you want dealing with this? Do you want somebody on a, on a precarious contract? We're all on, on temporary contracts, paid peanuts, Managed like call centre workers, we're not. We're not relaxed. We're not impartial. We're, we're not focused on doing the right thing and protecting the innocent, protecting people. We're just trying to make the numbers to keep this job until we can find something else. I, I'm out and I'm not going back. But the people that are still there should be earning three, four, five times as much as they're being paid right now. 
Well, and I suppose um, there's the there's the obviously the sort of um, re- remuneration aspect, but um, but I, I I guess the kind of um, the in-house support uh, and psychological support is is what feels particularly you, you know like that would be especially important uh, as 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 well. Um, what kind of um, opportunities were there um, in order to talk about how you were feeling and to debrief a little bit after seeing some of those some of those images finger painting and yoga uh, there's a there's a wellness team they're actually outsourced nobody's ever done this work before on this kind of scale nobody knows what the impacts are so they've just <laughs> you know, put these people in to provide you know standard corporate wellness without ever doing any research to understand what the problem really is Every team has to send a representative to a, to a compulsory resilience training. And you all sit there doing breathing exercises and getting in touch with your emotions. Um, and that is apparently enough, according to Facebook, without ever doing any kind of a trial to understand whether it is. It surprises me that a company like Facebook, whose bread and butter is to collect data isn't researching, or at least isn't publishing research, on the effects of content moderation on its workforce, or the efficacy of its wellness interventions. I asked Jennifer if anyone has been able to conduct such research. I've got no um, access, or I've seen no studies on the impact of moderation specifically on people who moderate for the big social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and I think that that's largely because it's almost impossible to speak to anybody who's done that job because they all sign non-disclosure agreements as part of it. So Chris is a really interesting case in that he's been very open about what he experienced. So it's very hard to study something if you can't get people to talk about it. We sign these NDAs and they they make it really, they, they hammer it home to us in training, you're not allowed to talk to anybody, even your family. Don't tell anybody about your work. If you've signed a non-disclosure agreement, then it really limits the amount of people who you can talk to about what's going on in your life. People who are starting to have relationship problems, people who are starting to get paranoid, but they can't talk to the people around them because they've signed non-disclosure agreements and so then the people around them don't know what's going on and start to react badly and then it just sets off these chains of events which can end up with people losing relationships all because they can't talk about what it is that they're seeing at work. And I think that that's really, really unhealthy. Um, I think, you know, definitely there would be people who say, I don't want to burden someone with that, I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk about it when I'm at home, but the fact that you're making it so that people can't talk about it, I think is extremely problematic. I, I, I sort of wonder whether um, whether it's even possible to offer adequate support. It feels to me that this is something of an experiment um, that kind of, you know, you can't really think of another time in human history, apart from, of course, the, the people who tragically are living in war zones for many years. Um, but, but this particular kind of sort of vicarious trauma and misery and being subjected to, uh, to, to, to that sort of quantity of images, this has never happened before. Maybe human beings just cannot be expected to, to cope with this and uh, no amount of support would be adequate. 
Look, I, I agree with you. I think that this is a grand experiment of sorts. Um, I wish it wasn't such a, a horrifying grand experiment of sorts. But I, you know, one of the things is I don't think anybody ever expected the, the sheer volume of uh, what was going to go up on the internet and, I, and you know, the speed at which all of this grew and certainly the kinds of um, governance and the guidelines that, that ran along with that sort of came last. And so one of the things that happens is if you don't set up those guidelines and you don't manage them from the very start, you're kind of you're kind of already destroying the ground that you are creating. So if you think about community guidelines and, and governance as sort of um, setting the framework for the tone of what it is that you're building. So if you set it up and it, you know, you're not fixing it at the beginning so it doesn't go toxic, it's going to go toxic and there's not a lot that you can do about it. The one thing that I, I like to come back to with all of this is like if Facebook can't moderate itself, like Facebook doesn't deserve to exist, right? Like if you if you run a restaurant and you can't tell people that the restaurant food won't make you sick, like you can't have a restaurant. Like that's what I think is really interesting about social networks right now. Like these huge ones, they're like, we just can't moderate what's going on and we can't, we, we keep traumatizing the people that were asking to moderate us. And you know, it's just too big. And it's like, if you were a regular business, we would just say, you can't have that business anymore. Like if you were, if you were a Walmart and you're like, we can't guarantee that all the products in the store are safe to consume or purchase. Good luck. You would shut that store down. <laughs> like you, uh, welcome to the mall. Uh, certain stores are on fire. We can't tell you which ones until you're inside. Good luck. Well, you can't have that mall. And I don't understand why Facebook as a business can be like, we just fundamentally can't do this very important part of having this business. Um, good luck. That's crazy to me. That, that is such. That is such a yeah. That, I mean, that's such a good point, and so and so well put. Yeah. So so we're, we're, we've just got this sort of starting position, this kind of accepted as though it's some sort of like Im, 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 immutable physical law that Facebook must <laughs> right. exist, and now we've got to to deal with the problems. But of course, uh, yeah, that's that's not true. Uh, maybe the best thing is that it doesn't exist. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think the internet's gotten to a point where if Facebook disappeared tomorrow, people would find each other again. Um, I think people would build probably something better. They'd also probably build some things that are worse. Um, as we've seen with things like Getter and Parler and Gab and all the rest. But I just think it is very odd that as a society, we have accepted this idea that Facebook is somehow the victim of their own inability to clean up their website and that they also don't need to pay or support anyone that they bring on to do that job. And it's like, you're, you're a big boy company. Like you're, you can, you can handle this. You have more money than God, like fix it or don't. So these big tech companies clearly have quite a complicated problem on their hands, but yes, they do also have more money than God, God being less avoidant of paying tax. So maybe they are equipped to deal with this, and maybe the solution lies in technology. What about artificial intelligence, for instance? Could AI do this moderation so that people don't have to? There's a couple things with AI that um, 
short answer is AI is not a good replacement for human moderation, and I don't think it ever will be. Or let's say if an AI gets good enough that it can moderate human beings, we have bigger issues because the robots will take over the world. Um, but the first problem with AI moderation is that <laughs> AIs are built by humans and they're largely built by white guys. And there's tons of really good research about this, but most AI is bias, if not outright racist. <laughs> I think it was Amazon. They, <laughs> they were like, okay, we want to hire a more diverse range of candidates. So they, they basically replaced their hiring process with an AI. And the AI just gave them a bunch of white guy candidates. And what they had discovered was that they trained the AI to find good uh, applicants and good resumes by feeding it <laughs> the resumes of previous applicants that had been hired. But all those previous applicants were white guys. So <laughs> they basically just trained a bot to find more white guys. And it's a really good, I think, uh, distillation of the AI problem, which is that most of the data you're feeding it uh, is skewed just because society is skewed. Um, and content moderation is a, is largely about protecting the most vulnerable groups, whether they're women or trans people or uh, ethnic minorities in, in, in whatever country is being moderated. Like you're looking for vulnerable people and making sure they're not being shut out. That's sort of like a key part of moderation. So an AI is not great at that. And then and a larger issue is that human beings, um, they don't speak and communicate in ways that are simple. Like training an AI to understand the difference between, uh, you know, hate speech and uh, like colloquialisms or, uh, or hell, training an AI to understand sarcasm. Human beings on the Internet can't even understand sarcasm. You think a, a robot's going to be able to do it? And that's that's sort of the issue here is and another really good example of this is actually like um, the constant issues around nipples on Instagram. You know, uh, you see the I don't know if you've seen the accounts where they'll, they'll take a man's nipple, Photoshop it and then put it on a woman. And it's sort of like a way to like protest like the the, the really oppressive, like, you know, sexual standards on Instagram. And AIs get tricked by this stuff all the time, like uh I, I, there was a there's an incident when when Tumblr first banned pornography a couple of years ago, and there were all of these images being accidentally banned because whatever AI they used was just seeing penises everywhere, <laughs> like it, it couldn't it, it couldn't stop seeing penises, and so there are just lots of examples of this not being a great thing. There's 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 dicks in the machine. That's 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 what's happening. I think. Everyone says, oh, well, it'll all be fine when there's artificial intelligence. It's all going to be fine when machine learning does it. Well, look what happened when Facebook turned on their machine learning to do moderation last year. I mean, it was an absolute. Can I swear on your podcast? Yeah, you swear away. Yeah, it was an absolute clusterfuck, right? Like pages were going down that shouldn't have come down. You know, the second they start doing that, it's just... It's a nightmare. At some end, there will always be a human at the end of those content moderation decisions. And we better get better at helping those humans who do it. So back to the humans who do it. What exactly did Chris feel when he was doing his job? I think the dominant emotion you know, for a lot of us is, is, is this quiet building despair. I would get home at two o'clock in the morning 
and just go straight to bed, collapse in bed, fall asleep. And then I would wake up at four or five. You sit up suddenly in bed. Jesus, I missed a nipple. You know, there, there was something in an image somewhere that you didn't see at the time, but you're still processing it after you've gone home, after you've gone to sleep. How did it sort of, or indeed has it, affected how you think and feel about um, the world and people and morality? You know, I'm just thinking I can sort of float through life with, of course, on some level, you know, in an abstract sense, of course, I'm aware that uh, heinous crimes are being committed all the time throughout the world. Has it affected how you think about the moral state of the world? So I'm just constantly on edge, seeing the worst in people all the time, seeing nastiness where maybe you know, previously I would have just ignored it. I walk down by the River Liffey to go to work and there are cyclists who don't stay on the cycle path and they come on the footpath. And you can be annoyed about that, that's normal. But I would stand in the way and, and get into huge screaming arguments with these people. Like, like looking for a fight, rearing up. And when I eventually get into therapy and they, they talk to me about PTSD manifests as a heightened fight or flight reflex. Your threat response is on edge. You're, you're ready to, to leap up and defend yourself or run away. And, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of in this constant constant conflict. I lost three jobs in the year after I left Facebook before I understood what was happening. Were you, um, I don't know, were you someone prone to getting into conflict before doing that job? Yeah, I've always picked my battles, but I really... never been fired from three jobs in a year because I'm getting into stupid arguments with people about nothing. And that, that was, you know, that was when I started to accept this idea that maybe there was something wrong with me as a result of the work. That was when I was able to start putting my own behaviour into context and, and see that I was really fucked up. F- fucked up how? On edge. Not, not sleeping looking for problems, overanalyzing everything now and, and arguing and getting emotional. There was like, it was like there was this huge well of emotion inside of me that, that anything could just open it and it would start, it was bubbling up, it was trying to get out. You know, the, the people I couldn't help, the, the baby that was dead because of ethnic cleansing genocide instigated by people on Facebook that we didn't stop I shouldn't but I do feel guilt for for all the people that have been harmed because we weren't able to do anything for them every kid that was bullied every pigs getting their fucking heads chopped off to the sound of the Peppa Pig theme tune, you know, blood everywhere and, and 
people being hurled out of cars and impaled on fence posts and somebody's got the video and put it online and what has that done to other people and just all of that pain and hurt and suffering but we were we're supposed to stop that we're supposed to be protecting the innocent protecting the weak and we're not we're trying to make our fucking numbers I think there's a sense of failure with the whole the whole content moderation effort has been a failure. There is, there is more nastiness and blood and gore and incitement to violence on Facebook than there was when I took the job. And there are ten times more people doing the job. Ten times more people supposedly putting a stop to this, but the problem is worse than ever. All those people are wasting their time. They're not achieving the goal. And that, it just, that hurts, it still hurts. So I'm, I'm still, I'm full of rage. And it sounds like you're, I don't know, carrying a lot of responsibility. I will say, I think more responsibility than, uh, than, than you need to. It sounds like, you know, you did your job to the very best of your ability. But I didn't do it to um, the best of my ability. Could... I did it within the parameters that were laid down for me. And we would be constantly trying to send messages up the food chain, saying to Facebook, these people, these people are dangerous. They are inciting violence. They are causing enormous social problems and suffering. And we need them to be banned from this platform. And nobody would fucking listen. We would get into trouble. We, we, were, we were literally, as a team, pulled into meetings and told, you do not, under any circumstances, talk to the client. You go through the chain of command and things will be resolved in their own time. So no, we didn't do the job to the best of our ability because if we'd have done that, we would have been deleting that shit and maybe fewer people would have been harmed. But then we would have been fired. It was some time after he finished moderating for Facebook that Chris received a phone call. I got a phone call from one of my former colleagues and he had talked to the press off the record and he was looking for a lawyer. He wanted to sue them. He told me he had PTSD and I kind of rolled my eyes at that. But I agreed that he could give my phone number to this reporter and I would, I would talk to her off the record in a coffee shop somewhere. Jennifer O'Connell from the Irish Times, she met me in a coffee shop in central Dublin and that was the first time I'd ever talked to anybody about the work. And when I started to talk about it, I, I just, I lost control. I, I sat there with tears streaming down my face, I couldn't speak, I choked up, I was a complete mess. And even then, you know, it, took, it was hard for me to, to accept that there was something wrong with me. You know, I, I had to go and see a doctor and the same thing happened. I, I, I broke down in the doctor's office and she diagnosed me with PTSD and sent me off to go and see a specialist. And that was when I, I was able to start getting my head around the idea that maybe I'd been harmed, but it was really hard for me to be, to accept. I would suggest that most people who moderate will at some point have um, have uh, 
discover that they have PTSD doesn't matter how um, you know extreme it is and often we know that people don't get treatment unless it's quite extreme it doesn't mean you don't have it your resilience is 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 pretty much at its lowest ebb and you just don't feel safe in the world and one of the biggest criticisms that I've seen of Facebook and I would um, join that is that once you stop being a moderator for Facebook you no longer have access to those supports it's as if Facebook believes and these contract organisations believe that PTSD just suddenly disappears once you're no longer working for the organisation, which is not how mental health works. It's not how trauma works. I think they really need to wrap their head around that a lot. I'm, you know, I'm a middle-aged man. I, I, I grew up in a world where we didn't have all these modern diseases. I'm, I'm very sceptical and, and acknowledging weakness it's like a failure. It's like it's a terrible thing for me to to sit there and, and emote publicly and say like Jesus, I've been harmed. I let these people damage me, and now I can't cope. And that's why I keep losing my job. And now I now I can't make a living because I'm broken. I, I've had some quite interesting difficult experiences in my life and I've always been fine and the idea that, that you could be traumatized and have some kind of disability as, as the result of you know watching stuff on a computer it, it's absurd it, it was absurd to me until I had to face the reality of it I am really looking forward to my day in court <laughs> I'm not. I'm not looking for a settlement. It's like it's not like pay me to go away. I want a judge to rule. Like yes, you should have known that this con this stuff could have harmed people, and you should have taken more steps to to understand the potential harm. And when the judge rules, like they were wrong and I was right, then I think that will be the vindication. I think that will be the final end for me. Maybe. I hope. Chris is still waiting for his day in court. I suppose it's an open question as to whether vindication can lessen the trauma that he and other moderators are forced to live with. I can relate to that feeling of wanting justice in order to move on from a difficult place. But I can also believe that, like with the cicadas, the answer may ultimately lie in changing our relationship with those feelings. As we've seen time and again in this series, nothing is simple where our emotions are concerned. But we've also seen that nothing could be more relatable or more human. And that brings us to the end of this first series. The producer is Kelly Bergen. I'm Nathan Filer. Thank you to Arts Council England for their support. And thank you, mostly, to you for listening. Bye for now.